Welcome to today's episode of Ownership Matters, a podcast for homeowners in resident-owned communities. Brought to you by Rock USA. I'm Paul Bradley. And I'm Mike Bullard. And listeners, we have a great guest for you today. We're joined by Bev Adrian, board president of the Woodlawn Terrace Cooperative, one of the newest resident-owned communities in the country. As you'll hear, Bev has quite the path to resident ownership. She sure did, and and I was fascinated by her story, Paul. As you'll hear in much more detail from Bev herself, she purchased a home in a community in Minnesota called Shady Lane, which was quickly sold and redeveloped right after she purchased her home there. As a result of that, she got heavily involved with an organization in Minnesota called All Parks Alliance for Change and helped pass a statewide relocation compensation fund. She was the president of APAC for three years, And then a few years ago, Bev purchased a new home at a community that was privately owned called Woodlawn Terrace. Literally, she talked to the community owner about resident ownership as she was buying her home. And when he expressed interest, she reached out to the North Country Cooperative Foundation. And that's where our story will take off and you'll hear more about that. Yes, Paul, let's jump right into Bev's story after I give listeners a little background on Bev. Bev Adrian is the board president of Woodlawn Terrace Cooperative in Richfield, Minnesota. She worked as a career placement counselor for 35 years, placing disabled adults into employment opportunities for a nonprofit agency in Minneapolis, St. Paul. She became involved in All Parks Alliance for Change after her first manufactured home community was sold and the land redeveloped. Her story was featured in the Twin Cities public television documentary, American Dream Under Fire. Hello, Bev. It is so wonderful to have you on Ownership Matters. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. It's really great to see you, and I'm really happy to be here. Great. It really is a pleasure. I guess, you know, we could title this episode, What a Long, Strange Trip It's Been, huh? Oh, I like that one. Yeah. Or I was thinking it could even be Ownership Sure Does Matter, doesn't it? It certainly does. So uh, stick with us, listeners, because uh, Bev's pathway to resident ownership has been a rocky one. So Bev, you and I first met in the early 2000s, and you were living in a different community than where you're living today. Can you take our listeners back to that time in your life? And you know, where were you living and what was going on for you and your neighbors? Well, just to put it In a nutshell, I was preparing myself for retirement. I had been looking at this brand new double wide home in a little park in Bloomington, Minnesota, a very residential community. The park had been there for probably 50 years, but they had parked a brand new double wide on the edge of the property. And I just felt inspired. I was ready to do something different and I purchased the home. Two weeks after I purchased the home, I was notified that the park was closing. And I went, "Ah!" I was absolutely shocked. The park owner never should have sold that house to me because he knew full well that that park was going to be closing. I did not realize two weeks before. Two weeks into owning the home. It was a nine-month notice. My house was two blocks away. Okay. And so I hung on to the house and I rented it out to my daughter and her friends and moved into my little home. It was very disturbing to find out that the park was closing and All Parks Alliance for Change, statewide organization in Minnesota, it's sort of a tenants union. 
The organizers came to our park to organize the residents. We had the right of first refusal law on the books. It had never been exercised. And we prepared ourselves to exercise the first right of refusal. We had 45 days to come up with the matching purchase of the property. And the park owner said no. We did come up with the down payment, $100,000, and the park owner just refused. He just said no. As a result, I became really active, and I was the president of the association, and the community really rallied behind the initiative to try to purchase the park, but I wasn't aware of the fact that the city had no interest in keeping that park. There were a lot of problems. It was dilapidated. Infrastructure needed to be repaired. The city had no interest whatsoever in keeping that park alive. Incredible. It was. It was really incredible. (laughs) So, Bev, what were some of the experiences of your old neighbors there? Do you know what has happened to them? Have you kept in touch? As a matter of fact, I have kept in touch. I hope that you take the opportunity to watch the documentary that was made through the process called The American Dream Under Fire. It was produced by TPT, Twin City Public TV, and the Northwest Area Foundation. And it was a documentary that sort of documented the closing process and what the residents went through. I did make friends there, and I am still in touch with one of the residents whose grandmother lived there. Her name is Vicki, and she has become a housing commissioner for HRA for the city of Bloomington, as a matter of fact, from that experience. (laughs) It touched a lot of people. I'm still in touch with Vanessa, who uh, was a young single mom that was in the park. I'm hoping that those two people can come to our celebration when we do have our celebration here, our We Own It party, as guest appearance, sort of surprise to the residents here. So yeah, I have am in touch. Most of the residents moved on. Some of them, I think 10 of them received Section 8 housing. They were unable to find anything, but the city opened up 10 Section 8 homes for them to accommodate them at the closing. So the city stepped up that way because there's a four-year waiting list to get on HRA. So there were 10 residents who lost their homes and essentially went into Section 8 housing, a public subsidy, which is really an important piece of the story. I'm curious, Bev, for yourself, you know, what did this represent for you as a financial loss, as a impact on your life? You said you were nearing retirement. If you don't mind sharing your personal story, how did this impact you? Well, to move the home, it was $10,000. And there was a statute on the books in Bloomington that had never been exercised. And that was that the park owner would be obligated to pay for the removal, or if the home could not be removed, purchasing the home for destruction or paying the, the owners off. My home was a double wide. And I think the park owner fully expected me to move into another park about 10 miles away. And there was no way I was going to give him another nickel of my money. So I moved my home 50 miles outside of the Twin Cities area. That's another story, but I won't go into it. I didn't move with that home and I put it on the market. I was able to sell it took about 10 years, but I was able to sell that home. I moved back into my house that I have been renting out, and I have been living there for the last 16 years. So I am retired, and I started thinking, you know what? I just don't want to have this big four-bedroom house with a big yard and all the maintenance and all the work. So I found this little house 
a mile and a half north of my home. So I consider this my cabin up north in the woods, a quaint little community about 50 some years old. I was aware of this community because of my activism with APAC and I have visited many parks in the Twin Cities area, outstate, in my community activism with All Parks of Alliance for Change. I saw this place. I bought it within five minutes of seeing it, which was a little hasty, but, you know, I do that sometimes. I um, went up to sign the purchase agreement and apply with the park owner. I told him my little story about Shady Lane closing, and he said, oh, well, I have to tell you, I do have an offer on this place. And I said to my realtor, but he said, the deal has fallen through and I have pulled the purchase agreement off the table, but it takes 30 days to exercise the cancellation of that purchase agreement. So I said to my realtor, all right, I'm going to put a contingency on the purchase of this home only if the park does not sell. And I just kind of took a big gulp and swallowed, and I had to wait 30 days for it to be pulled off the table. And then I was contacted that the offer was over. I could go ahead with the purchase. And I said to him, well, you know, I know some people. And I'd like to know if you would consider the possibility of considering to sell the property to the residents as a cooperative. He said, yeah, I'd talk to somebody. So that was my finesse. I immediately, really immediately, became in contact with North Country Co-op Foundation, the local technical assistance arm from Rock USA, and talked to Victoria Clark. And I said, hey, this park owner, he's 80-some years old. He's owned this property for 53 years. He wants to sell, and he's willing to talk with you regarding selling as a cooperative to the residents. And so kind of my story. (laughs) That was 15 months ago. Wow. So you're dabbling in uh, brokerage here. (laughs) That's what I did in a 15 month process. I feel like I've been pregnant for 15 months and I wanted to have this baby. Now there's a headline for you. Well, congratulations on that. Uh, And we want to hear a lot more about the co-op and your experience through your purchase process and now into your ownership of the community. But I can't help but asking, because I I bet some of our listeners are asking themselves, Bev, how did you have the confidence to purchase another home in a community after having lost your home? I didn't. I just took a big gulp. I kept the house, okay? I kept my other house still. And if I had to move back home again, I had a backup plan. I couldn't go through that again. It was too painful the experience of losing that opportunity. But I took a big gulp. I had confidence in North Country Co-op Foundation. I've had confidence in you, Paul Bradley, since I've met you and listened to your pipe dream of having technical assistance across the United States when we met at the Meredith Institute way back when. And so, I mean, I was inspired. I really was. And confidence, well, I took a big gulp, like I said and just jumped in and thought, okay, I'll ride this wave and see where it it takes me. Interesting. It is fascinating to me. I've had this experience many times in my life where I, you know, imagine something will be, and lo and behold, it comes together. You know, it takes that forethought. And it sounds like you had one of those where in bringing it up at the, what I think I heard, Bev, at the actual purchase of your home, the closing is when you introduce the idea of, of also joining with your neighbors and buying the community. It sounds like you 
you planted an important seed there and then immediately followed up with North Country. I just love that. You know, I have the experience and I have the knowledge. I had a taste in my mouth of what that could be. You know, I had watched co-ops develop in the state over the last 15 years. And I've seen other parks close. Laurie Grove, for one, as an example, another inner city first ring park just a few years ago. There were two suicides as a result of that park closing. It's devastating for people. Truly heartbreaking story. And after everyone was displaced, I understand that the property is now being redeveloped as a community. The city didn't approve of the redevelopment plans. And so the person who, or the investors who purchased the park are redeveloping it. Tell us about your new community, would you? What's it like there? Well, this is an old community. People have lived here for 30 plus years. We have a variety. We have 30 residents here right now. Four of them are in their 40s, two of them are in their 20s, and the other are old people. Everybody's very enthused about this process. They've been very embracing of the idea. We have 85% participation of the residents joining uh, the co-op. We have uh, slotted 21 new homes being brought into the community, been sort of neglected, so to speak. Homes have been removed. We have five homes that are abandoned. They're going to be removed and replaced. So we're, we're planning on rejuvenating this community and it's going to be a process. We have realtor broker who is going to fund the placement of the new homes, which we're working in partnership with. We've private well and the water is just horrible and that's the number one complaint for the community the infrastructure the water system uh, we're planning on connecting to the city water supply and we have our, have applied for a grant from the state of minnesota for that project and the city of richfield has also contributed a chunk of money towards that project for the water connection that's terrific. Getting the involvement of your local and state government is terrific and fairly uncommon, I think, in our experience, getting that sort of involvement, especially right off the bat. I have a follow-up question on the purchase there. Tell us about the impact of bringing in 20 new homes and getting five additional homes back on the roll. What's that going to do to the folks who are there now? Well, people are concerned, you know, because the new people are coming. <laughs> who are the new people? We have to do it for financial reasons. We certainly have to generate the income here to support ourselves, just to afford ourselves here and the uh, mortgage. So it's a necessary evil, but actually the property was licensed for 73 homes and we're only going to have 53 homes. So it's not going to be packed and crowded. We have five acres, heavily wooded, a lot of nature is around us. We have turkeys that live here. We have fox. We have opossums. We have bald eagles that fly over. We have flocks of crows that uh, fight with the turkeys. It's a real natural area. We don't anticipate that we're going to be removing trees. We'll certainly trim as needed or remove trees to move in new properties. But it's going to remain a pretty rural feel to the property still. Well, that's impressive because Woodlawn Terrace is in Richfield, Minnesota. How far are you from downtown Minneapolis? We're a first spring suburb. We're about seven miles from Minneapolis. We're seven minutes from the airport. We're six blocks from the interstate. You can get anywhere in the world from here. We have retail right outside our property on the main streets. We have Best Buy headquarters 
not far from here, just a few blocks away. We're surrounded by development, you know, a residential neighborhood with duplexes, homes, apartments, and we're in this little pocket of rural, <laughs> in this little five-acre slice of piece of property that nobody even knows it's here. Even people that have lived here for 30 years drive by and don't even know that this exists. So interesting. Well, I can I can hear the marketing of those new homes now. So take us into the mechanics a little bit of your relationship with the uh, manufactured home uh, retailer here, that uh, the individual that's buying and placing homes. How your description of that and then a little insight into that for other co-op leaders who are looking at infill sites in in their communities? Well, she was the realtor that I purchased. She sold the property to me. She was my realtor here for the property. And we just hit it off right off the bat. I mean, for some reason, she and I just started yakking at each other and talking. And I explained to her my little Shady Lane story. And she is the only realtor broker in the state, which is pretty uncommon. There used to be more, but she deals in homes and high quality homes. And so I sort of, well, through this process, I have been in touch with her and introduced her to North Country Co-op Foundation. And they have had multiple meetings with her also. And um, North Country is forming a partnership with her as a result of my introduction to her. Wonderful. And what is she exactly doing for the co-op? Can you just uh, take us through the mechanics of that a little bit? We've identified seven lots initially that we are going to prepare for the placement of the new homes. She and her husband own the business. They are going to prep the lots, which means grading, laying piers, concrete piers for the homes. The homes have been ordered. As a matter of fact, she was able to broker with the manufacturer two-bedroom units Our lots are very small, and so our homes are smaller than we want two-bedroom homes because we want to attract families. The city of Richfield has also committed to grants for first-time home buyers, $10,000 grants for first-time home buyers. So those are families and or potential families. And so we feel that the two-bedroom units would be much more marketable than um, single one-bedroom units. We want to attract a mixed-age community. I think it's healthier than just old people. <laughs> God, well, all those old people just don't need to be hanging out together. We need babies and we need kids <laughs> and the 20-somethings. So husband and wife team prepping the lots, preparing the site, bringing the homes in. They will obviously fit the house up and uh, skirting, et cetera. And then they will market that home. They will sell it. Buyers will get financing from third-party lenders if they need it. You've arranged for some down payment assistance, just terrific. And we want to work with our credit union, a little local credit union. We're going to arrange a meeting to see if they will finance the package of the 21 homes that we're planning on bringing in. And the co-ops piece of this, obviously overseeing, make sure the improvements to the site are done properly. But then really you're going to receive an application and you're going to approve or not approve the new member coming in. And that's really the co-op's role in this, huh? Exactly. Yes, we have a process and procedures for interviewing applicants. We have developed um, guidelines for credit, background checks, et cetera. We have a property management company that is, they're doing the tough stuff. We're doing the fun stuff. <laughs> Listeners, please take note of that. That really, property management companies doing the, the work of, of property management and co-op boards 
paying attention to some of the social elements of the health of the community, neighborliness of a community. So good for you, Bev. Excellent. Oh, my visions and my wildest imagination are unending. (laughs) Hey, take us into, um, for listeners new to resident ownership, take us into the role of the technical assistance provider. You talked about North Country Cooperative Foundation, obviously an affiliate of Rock USA and some wonderful, wonderful staff members there. Give us a sense and feel for North Country's uh, work in the community with you all. Well, I've been so overwhelmingly impressed with the staff, with the executive director through this whole process. A lot was going on behind the scenes from last September when I moved in and Victoria Clark, who I contacted the executive director initially, she and I were talking. She says I was dogging her, hounding her. (laughs) We talked on a weekly basis. What's going on, Vicki? Victoria, tell me. (laughs) She was in touch with the park owner. She was working with him and his attorney to develop a purchase agreement that was acceptable to both parties. And we had hoped to have a purchase agreement signed by last December. That was delayed. We hoped that it would be February. That was delayed. We finally were able to agree upon a purchase agreement in April. And we brought the idea of becoming a co-op to the whole community then in March. Our first community general meeting was the end of March. So there was a lot going on prior to the community even knowing this was going on. I had just moved in, so I was the new kid on the block, and I didn't have any credibility or any knowledge. Nobody knew me. And so I just laid low until we had something secure to present to the community to explain to them what we were attempting to bring forward. What was the reaction of your new neighbors to this idea of resident ownership? They were just astounded and just thrilled because they had lived for the last 10 years under the fear of knowing parks were closing and we were, this one was probably the next one to go. It was just a matter of time. They had heard rumors that the city proposed tearing this out down and creating a dog park, tearing it down and creating condos, high rise, multifamily structures here. So everybody was living in fear, just living in fear any day now. And they knew that the park owner had accepted an offer from another developer before I showed up. And they didn't know the outcome that it had been pulled off the table. So I sort of just established myself slowly in the community, getting to know people. At our first community meeting, I gave them a little my background to explain where I was coming from, what experience I had had, and I was voted president of the resident association. (laughs) That's called laying low, everybody. You said when you first broached the topic of selling to the residents with the community owner, you know, that he was receptive, but can you give us a, put a little spotlight on that for us and tell us a little bit about, you know, the reaction or the, was this not even something that was on his radar, was something he'd ever heard of? Tell us how that went. The park owner had heard of North Country Co-op Foundation. Victoria Clark sends a letter out to all park owners on a yearly basis, I've heard, to let them know that North Country Co-op Foundation exists and they were interested in talking with park owners about purchasing for cooperative reasons. Tori has told me since then that I'm the first resident or first person that has ever approached North Country Co-op Foundation about purchasing for co-op purposes in her experience here in Minnesota. 
So the park owner was very receptive because he really wanted to sell. He's 83 years old and he is not in good health. And um, the first, the deal that fell through, I believe that they couldn't get the funding, the financing. So it was just an inch away possibly from selling to a developer before I came here. I think I had heard in the process that the community owner, the seller now, was interested in moving into the co-op. Is that still a part of the plan? Yep, that's still part of the plan. He lives in a big old brick house built in 1938 that um, he is going to leave after five months. He's asked for five months in the home to put things in order. He's owned a little mobile home here, number 29, just two doors down from me. He's going planning on moving into in the spring and joining the co-op. So I joke with him. I said, well, you'll be a part owner again. Well, tell us, uh, what's the startup been like? You've been owners for a couple of weeks now, right? A couple of weeks now, and um, it's a flutter of activity. Everything from getting a hold of the keys, making copies of the keys, distributing the keys, getting the utilities transferred, figuring out we're going to do a little field trip. We have a laundry room that's been shut down recently, needs substantial amount of work, and um, the machines are ancient and we don't have the funds to rehab that at this point in time but we're gonna it has several rooms and we don't know what the rooms what's in there and so we're going on a field trip this afternoon to go exploring (laughs) the board's gonna check it out well bev i would be (laughs) remiss if i didn't pause here to tell you and remind listeners about the better together grants program uh, which is an annual uh, program at rock usa that's put on by the Rock Association, and that is a series of $2,000 grants toward projects, just like what you're talking about with your laundry facility. Look for news on that coming at rockusa.org in the spring. I absolutely will. Thank you for that tip. Appreciate it. I love grants. I'd like to get a grant for raised bed gardens here from a local greenhouse that's really huge in Minnesota. And I don't say that out loud. (laughs) Well, we have have several co-ops that have done uh, community gardening projects and distributing food within the community during the summer. Really some great gardeners out there. And uh, being a gardener myself, I'm I strongly encourage it. Well, it's in my wildest imagination, and that's been pretty rampant the last year. (laughs) What could we do here? Very exciting. Want to look at solar opportunities also, and um, it's just unlimited. You know, the imagination just can go crazy and fun. I'd like to take you back to something you mentioned earlier and meeting Paul so many years ago and his vision for Rock USA that had not even developed yet. But tell us about this origin story with the two of you, would you? When I was the president of All Parts Alliance for Change, it was the time when money was flowing and we were granted money to organize on a national level. And we were uh, granted money to have national conventions. We had Two in Minnesota. Well, we were granted to go to the Meredith Institute in New Hampshire. That was our first grant to meet Paul and that group of people. And um, we heard about your vision. And that was very inspiring, by the way, and still memorable to me. We were able to organize a phone call-in system back then. (laughs) We didn't have Zoom or Google or, you know, but we had a phone call-in monthly. And you were part of that, Paul. I remember that. I remember you asking if it was okay to put your kids in front of the TV while you were on this call. (laughs) 
And through that calling network, we got to know a lot of people across the country, everywhere from New Hampshire, Ohio, Colorado, Washington State, and everywhere between, oh, down in Florida, California, we had this national network of calling and people just starting to share their stories with each other. Then we were funded for the national conventions. We were able to pull people together physically, you know, in mass, up to 100, 150 people at a time at our conventions. Two in Minnesota, I was able to help coordinate, and one in Seattle. And the network just grew, I think, from that point on. I know there's still, the national organization is still going strong and probably much stronger. I pulled back after I moved back into my home and and lost my other property. And so I sort of removed myself from it because I wasn't involved. I wasn't living in a park and I didn't feel the camaraderie because I just wasn't there anymore. But I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> just real quickly, Paul, can you tell listeners what the about the Meredith Institute, just real quick, because I'm not sure everyone's familiar. It came and went after two sessions because uh, the reason we started the Meredith Institute was, you know, we've been helping homeowners purchase their communities in New Hampshire since 1984. And 20 years later, there was growing interest around the country around resident ownership. And and our team was you know, receiving phone calls from Washington and Minnesota and other places. And uh, as opposed to answering those calls one off, I had the bright idea to start the Meredith Institute. So at least bring everybody together for a, a couple of days and deal with it all in one fell swoop as opposed to, you know, 12 independent uh conversations going on. And it uh, generated tremendous enthusiasm around resident ownership around the country. So it is the precursor to Rock USA. In nonprofit language, it would be called uh, replication strategy. You know, we were just teaching other people about resident ownership there in 04, 05, 06. And Rock USA was developed because some of the shortcomings of replication, you know, which is Things aren't done anywhere close to the original site, you know, the original intent or uh, in any manner that would you know, sort of build on itself. And Rock USA was created to, you know, standardize resident ownership across the country so that we could actually build out a, a national network and, you know, scale services to that network of resident owned communities. And so we launched in 2008, having experienced you know, the Meredith Institute and people going off and doing a wide variety of things. And in 2008 with Rock USA said, let's let's all get together and do this in a similar fashion everywhere so we can really scale up the activity and uh, bring more benefits and more services to resident-owned communities. So, well, at the end of 2021, Mike, what, uh, 287 resident-owned communities in the network and almost 20. If we had said that in 2004 or five when we were together, I think we would have said, hey, Something's going well. Uh, I guess something's working because that's a, a far cry from where we were 20 years ago. But important follow-up question. I know your wife's not Meredith. I know your girls aren't Meredith. Who was Meredith and why did you name it for her? It's not her, Mike. And in fact, we're going to have a podcast here shortly with the son of the original founding president of the Meredith Center Cooperative for which the Meredith Institute is named. So the Meredith Center Cooperative, as we heard in our podcast with Julie Eads, was the first resident-owned community in New Hampshire, June of 1984. And uh, so we named the Institute after the Meredith Center Cooperative, therefore the Meredith Institute. 
But if I knew then what I know now, we could have called it the Bev Adrian Institute. Well, Bev, you know, your story really reflects why I've committed my entire career to homeowners like you. I mean, I just can't imagine owning a home on land that you don't control and having that land taken out from underneath you and the disruption that that causes. You you obviously are agile person obviously disrupted some of your retirement planning. I'm sure it was a significant financial cost. Um, And it's so wonderful to see that you obviously are resilient and recovered. And now uh, full circle, here you are, you know, leading a cooperative in your community there in Richfield. And I'm just so happy that we could be a part of that full circle for you. Really tremendously satisfying for me. Well, I think of myself not as retired, but rejuvenated. This whole experience has just really been an uplifting, exciting experience that I can't even share with you how exhilarating it is. It's just amazing. And thank you, Paul, for sharing your vision and the spark, part of the spark. We share together and uh, it's great to be together yet again. And here we go and look forward to you you linking with other co-op leaders in Minnesota and in other states. Uh, through the association as we really build out this network. And your voice, Bev, is a welcomed addition to a great chorus. And uh, I think a lot of people are going to be interested in your story. So thank you so much for joining us on Ownership Matters and telling your story. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure and a real delight to be part of this experience and to share the experience, you know, that I've had. And I hope I can inspire other people to just go for it. Just do it. Can't say it better than that. Wow, Paul, Bev has one powerful story. She might be the only story I've ever heard of a resident approaching a seller directly to encourage the sale. And he's going to be her neighbor. What a happy ending for all. She really is incredible. And to think, uh, you know, her path starts back at the Meredith Institute with me anyway. And, you know, going forward, we could just expect some really big things from Bev and Woodlawn Terrace Cooperative. I can't wait to see where this community ends up. Indeed. And we've included a link to the documentary American Dream Under Fire in the show notes. If you have a few minutes, it's a really powerful look into the impact a community closure has on the people who live there. Hey, thanks for joining us on today's episode of Ownership Matters. Is there an uplifting story happening in your community that we should talk about in an upcoming episode? Let us know by sending us an email at ownershipmatters at rockusa.org. That's ownershipmatters at rocusa.org. Thanks, everyone. Talk soon.